heard this jump, this rumbling sound. Well, of course, I thought it was going to rain, and then it sounded as if someone was hollering or screaming. Now, this would sound crazy, but I'd swear it was coming from the roof of this here house. So I got my scatter gun and went out to sea. But then it seemed like the hollering and screaming was coming from the top of the trees. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Dallas Multipass. You're a stupid mind. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing at the same time. Listen. Welcome to Celluloid Days, a podcast of film and film history. This is episode 79, and I'm your host, Jeffrey Kelly, an old man from the Midwest. The idea of this podcast is to force me to watch films I wouldn't normally watch, and for that, I depend on you, the listener. So next time you see a film that confuses you and you wonder, what the heck was that? Keep me in mind. Or if you have any film you think I should watch that I might not have seen, let me know. I'll have information on how you can reach me at the end of today's show. Today, however, I'm going to do something a bit different. I'm going to tell you the tale of a wannabe actor and a wannabe director who got together and made a horror film. And um, this film, well, let's just say it didn't set the world on fire. God, when I got out of the car... Well, Doc, what I'm trying to say is my car was up in the sky. The film was called The Psychotronic Man from 1979. Actually, it premiered on April 23rd, 1980, with Chicago Mayor Jane Byrne in attendance, which is odd because the film was made sort of illegally. Anyway, what is The Psychotronic Man? A Chicagoland barber named Rocky Fasco has issues. He drinks too much, doesn't seem all that excited about his job, and has a really bad marriage. I mean, he's even cheating on his wife with a young beautician who works in the shop next to his. One night he's driving home, taking the long way, the very, very long way, and he's drinking as he drives. He pulls over on Old Orchard Road and falls asleep. When he wakes, his car is floating in the air. Something weird is going on. The next morning, after explaining to his wife that his headache is not caused by a hangover, which apparently is a daily occurrence... Again? But I don't have a hangover, damn it. He goes to see the doctor. When he returns to work, he has some sort of attack. One you might call a psychotronic attack. 
Returning to the scene of the previous night, he meets an elderly and colorful man who lives in an old wooden shack right out of the 1940s. Got trouble, mister? Huh? Uh, no. You live around here? No, right over there. I mean, seriously, I grew up in the area this film was made, and I don't think this type of uh, old shack existed anymore. Anyway, he has another psychotronic attack, and the old man is found dead. The body is found in the most unnatural way the next day by the police. One of the policemen, of course, because he's a Chicago detective, has a very thick Irish accent. But doctor, this gun has been fired. Like I told you, O'Brien, as far as I can tell, no bullet has entered this body. Rocky returns to the doctor, and the doctor ends up becoming another psychotronic victim, but not before he calls police. Now the police, who are poor detectives at best, connect Rocky with the murders. After Rocky has a quick fling with his beautician girlfriend... Rocky, you know how I feel about you. But, but I just can't go on like this. Well, damn it, Kathy. What do you want me to do? He goes back home where the police are waiting outside. Who is it? I'm Lieutenant Walter O'Brien, Madam, County Sheriff's Department. I'd like to speak to Mr. Fosco, please. Maybe Rocky kills his wife, maybe he doesn't. And that sort of depends on which cut of the film you're watching, and I'll get into that in a few minutes. But he manages to escape from the inept detectives, and the chase is on. And after a long, long, long chase, Rocky is trapped with a SWAT team all around. And out of nowhere, a new character appears, a special intelligence agent with an overdubbed voice. Lieutenant, what are your intentions as to capturing Mr. Fosco? Are you familiar with the details of this case? Let's put it this way. We've had him under surveillance. Make certain no harm comes to him, and that when he is captured, he'll be placed in my custody. What? He orders the police to capture Rocky alive because the government wants to exploit his powers, as governments often do. So that's the basic setup for The Psychotronic Man, and like often what happens to me is I found I wanted to learn more about this film, who made it, why they made it, when they made it, all that stuff, so... And the first thing I found, looking into the history, is that psychotronic wasn't a term invented by the filmmakers, nor was it coined by film critic Michael J. Weldon, the publisher of the Psychotronic Encyclopedia of Film. I found the term referred to in newspaper articles starting in 1968, the first being about the abuse of pep pills, tranquilizers, and hallucination-inducing drugs. The article reads, There's a need, he continued, to bring psychotronic drugs that affect the nervous system under worldwide control. And another article from 1974 reads, It's a sixth sense in a way, he said. In Russia, they call it psychotronic energy, and religious people call it spiritual powers. Whatever you call it, it's energy released by thoughts. This is the reason everybody is here. 
and even in the book Stars and Serendipity by Robert S. Richardson from 1971, he refers to something called a psychotronic generator. Who knows when this word was first used, but in 1979 there was a film called The Psychotronic Man, and it was a result, as far as I can tell, of two people, Peter J. Spelson and Jack M. Sell. Let's start with Spelson. Peter Spelson, and I hope I'm pronouncing that name correctly, S-P-E-L-S-O-N, was born on October 31, 1931, and grew up in the Chicago suburbs. He graduated from Morton West High School and served in the Army during the Korean War. He became a chiropractic doctor and then an insurance salesman who owned his own insurance firm in Oak Park, Illinois. He was very successful, but then decided to pursue his real passion, and that was acting. His first acting job was in an Anthony Quinn film, A Dream of Kings. He said in an interview in 1976, Eleven years ago, I auditioned and got the part in Dream of Kings, but unfortunately, my scenes and lines wound up on the cutting room floor. Nevertheless, I was kept on the payroll looking for people to put into background spots. Having always been interested in films, I got deeper and deeper into it until Main Street Eagle came along. Main Street Eagle was a film written and directed by Don Smardo, and it starred Spelson, who also produced it. You know, often, when an actor is the producer of a low-budget film, I assume it's because he helped with the financing, though I could be wrong. In an article from The Berwyn Life from August 1975, which is titled Cicero Goes to Hollywood, it says Smarto, who holds a degree in music, philosophy, and theology, served for five years as an instructor of cinematography at Triton College. In 1976, there was an article in the Cicero Life that read, Spelson looks at the movies as a turning point for him. If it clicks and Spelson overflows with confidence on the subject, he expects to go on with his acting career even to the point of putting it above the insurance business. He said he's already getting offers. The insurance business has been very good to me, but it's not fulfilling enough. I think I can diversify and still keep my fingers on the pulse of the business while pursuing an acting career. Surprisingly enough, or maybe not surprisingly at all, he is being encouraged in this endeavor by his wife, Marianne, and the couple's four children. I am playing most of this low profile, he said, some of my friends have not been aware of what's been happening. An adult western will be my next project. Unfortunately, the critics weren't kind to Main Street Eagle. Gene Siskel of the Chicago Tribune had this to say. The Hinsdale Theater, which traditionally shows quality revivals, this week is presenting Main Street Eagle, a juvenile political lecture put together by people who don't know how to make movies. It was produced by and stars Peter Spelson, an Oakbrook insurance tycoon who fancies himself a movie star. Spelson is a demon at selling insurance, but he met his match in director Donald Smarto, a young Chicagoan who certainly knows how to sell himself, if not direct a movie. Smarto is unable to match even the sound and images of a person walking up a flight of stairs. The film shamelessly uses footage of President John F. Kennedy's assassination to sell an inept story about political espionage. Sunday night, the theater's manager was apologizing to customers for Main Street Eagle by giving away passes for a future attraction. 
Ratings for Main Street Eagle, no stars. Well, Mr. Siskel, words can hurt, you know. Donald Smarto would never direct another feature film again. But Peter Spelson wasn't ready to call it a day. I don't know anything about that adult western he mentioned. As far as I can tell, it was never made, but he began to write his own story. In an interview in 1980 in The Cicero Life, he talked about it. Spelson says he got the idea for The Psychotronic Man about seven or eight years ago, although he admits he had never experienced paranormal powers or knows anyone who has, Spelson says he has always been interested in the paranormal. There is such a thing as psychotronic power, Spelson says. The Russians have been experimenting with it. There are some people that when psychotronic powers does surface by accident, often they themselves don't know what happened. We use this as building our character. The director of the film, Jack M. Sells, was born in 1958. In 1976, the Chicago Tribune reported, Sells' experience in film had begun at an early age. He started while in high school, working as a cameraman at a television station, working in his hometown of Albany, Georgia. By the time he graduated from Chicago's Columbia College in 1975, he had already produced and directed both documentaries and promotional programs. And the Atlanta Constitution had this to say. Jack M. Sell, a scholarship student at Columbia College in Chicago, has been accorded a honorable mention by the judges of the 1974 Kodak Film Festival in Rochester, New York, for his documentary Albany Junior College, A New Beginning. Sell produced and directed his winning film last year while attending Albany Junior College, located in Albany, Georgia. In Chicago, Sell is employed by the Michael Reese Medical Institution as an audiovisual specialist and is producing a one-hour documentary on the city of Chicago. Sell worked for several years in Albany as a director at a local NBC television station, hosted a weekly teen talk show for the radio, and reviews motion pictures for a weekly column in the Albany Journal. So somehow, Spelson got together with Sell and they decided to realize Spelson's story on the film. In November of 78, the Cicero Life reported, On camera, the public will soon have a chance to see Cicero Town President Christy Burkos enjoying himself as a tough police chief. But the Cicero Police Chief, Art Lang, needn't worry about his job. Burkos was role-playing in The Psychotronic Man, a movie produced locally by Peter Spelson of Oak Brook. Burkos has had parts in two previous Spelson productions. Pete's brother Tom of Ginger Creek is also involved in the movie-making film, and the Spelson family formerly lived in Cicero. This show, like the others, will probably be shown in local theaters or distributed on a wider basis if it finds favor with larger firms. And according to the Los Angeles Times, the film was made for about $175,000. That's pretty cheap even for 1980. In this remote farmhouse just off Old Orchard Road, a bizarre killing was discovered early this afternoon. Oh, officer, this is Lieutenant Walter O'Brien, investigating officer for this most unusual case. Lieutenant, can you give us an explanation? I have no comment at this time, ma'am. Surely you must have some idea. Look, lady, I said I have no statement. Now, what the hell are you doing here anyway? Hey, Lieutenant! And according to the Psychotronic Man website, a website that was created when the film was released on DVD 20 years after it was made, 
The Psychotronic Man was a low-budget independent science fiction film that was shot in 17 days in Chicago during the 70s. It was written, produced, and starred in by Peter G. Spelson, an insurance salesman and an out-of-work actor who decided the best way to be in feature films was to make one himself. The Psychotronic Man was the first feature-length movie to have been shot and edited entirely in Chicago since the start of World War I. In addition to this, Chicago's longest-running mayor felt that the movies that were being made at the time were rebellious and lewd and didn't want movies made in his town. After he died, that meant there wasn't much in place to allow movies to be created in Chicago. As a result, much of The Psychotronic Man was shot without permission. That means that the high-speed car chases were fake police cars, flashing lights and sirens down the Eisenhower Expressway, as well as the running gun battles in downtown Chicago, were done on the turn with no authority to do so or prior notification. Now, the mayor mentioned here was Richard J. Daly, who was mayor of Chicago from 1955 till his death in 1976. He thought that the only films being made in Chicago were about gangsters showing the city in a mostly negative or rebellious way. So he did his best to keep films from being made in the city, wanting Chicago to be seen only in a good light. So that's the legend, that there were fake police cars that raced through the streets of Chicago without permits. And when the film was completed, they had the premiere at the Carnegie Theater on April 23, 1980 at 7 p.m. And even though it was filmed illegally, the mayor of Chicago, Jane Byrne, showed up. And this is from an article in the Cincinnati Inquirer on May 11, 1980. Jack Sell may be a name to remember. If he has his way, the 25-year-old prodigy will bring back the glamour of the 20s to the movies of the 80s. His favorite aunt, Evelyn Cadwell, Mrs. Will, is just back from the world premiere of his first feature-length film, The Psychotronic Man in Chicago, where she was part of the flashy opening night scene and received the full Hollywood-type treatment. Evelyn said, Jack arrived with his girlfriend in a white limousine wearing a white tuxedo. Mayor Jane Byrne cut the ribbon to the Carnegie Theater, which was packed, and the crowds were pushing and shoving to see. All I could think was Elvis Presley, she said. That aura of fame, excitement, and glamour is being carefully cultivated by Jack Sell, who is selling all the time through Jack M. Sell Associates Limited. He has been making movies since he was seven years old and professionally for the last ten years. This is his first major venture into a movie which he wrote and directed with an all-major cast, crew, and location. So the film, well, it didn't quite set the world on fire and was pretty much forgotten about soon after it was released. It ended Spelson's acting career and Sell wouldn't direct another movie until 1987, which was another very low-budget movie. And the reason for this, well, there are many, but it really starts with our main protagonist, Rocky. Why should we care for him? 
He drinks so much that his wife automatically gives him an Alka-Seltzer first thing in the morning. And on a side note here, Alka-Seltzers are, are usually taken two at a time, but anyway. Why didn't you tell me they were here? Because you were passed out drunk. There was no way anyone or anything could have woke you up. You slept all day. Never mind. He doesn't seem happy. His wife doesn't seem happy. And their kids, well, we don't know anything about their kids. And what's with his wife's quickly changing attitude? One minute she's talking like she wants him dead. And the next she's affectionately calling him honey. But I don't have a hangover, damn it. Well, then go see a doctor, honey. Yes, she calls her unfaithful alcoholic husband honey. And as we found out later, she knows he's been fooling around with another woman, so... What do you mean you don't know? Has it got something to do with that broad you've been seeing? I haven't got time to explain. And why not? Get off of me! I think to make this story work, Rocky needs to be a likable character. We need to care for and sympathize with Rocky to root for him. Now, Spelson wrote this story for himself. I get that. He was a businessman who was trying to start an acting career. But the thing is, he's all wrong for the part. For all you young wannabe actors out there who are writing a screenplay as a vehicle to begin your own acting career, take a few moments to look into the mirror and be honest with yourself. Are you the hero type? I think Spelson would have been better off playing the part of a policeman or a detective who's hot on the trail of the psychotronic killer. And I think we need a little bit more to the story. I mean, why was this being done by Rocky? And is there any way to end the horror? Rocky could have been searching for those answers. Remember the 1941 film The Wolfman, which is basically the same story. Lon Chaney Jr. looks for answers. He goes to the old Romani woman, and she gives him a charm that will prevent his transformation. But Chaney gives that charm to his girlfriend instead for her protection. He makes a sacrifice. Does Rocky make any such sacrifice? It wouldn't matter, because we know very little about his wife or his girlfriend. So, instead, he just runs and runs and runs. Now, I don't want to spoil the ending for you, but I am. The film is available on YouTube right now if you want to see it, so if you don't want the end spoiled, stop now, watch it, come back. Anyway, it has one of those silly, it's not over yet endings. It's a similar ending to John Carpenter's Halloween that came out two years previously. Why the ending worked in Halloween? Well, that's because the plot revolved around Laurie Strode, Jamie Lee Curtis's character. We care about her, and when she's rescued by Dr. Loomis, her story is over. Well, we thought it was over till Halloween, too, anyway. The thing is, the story didn't revolve around Michael Myers. But instead of him fixing her itching ears, he told me to go home and get a pile of her stool. Well, of course, we call it number two. I couldn't imagine what does that have to do with itching ears, so I went home, well, not to get the number two. Instead, I called the Veterans Hospital, and they tell me, well, we treat people here, not dogs, and that I should call the Vet Hospital. But I said, this is the Vet Hospital, isn't it? You know, he hung up on me. And there's one other problem I have to talk about in this movie, and that's, 
I don't know what it is. It's either a lens hood that shouldn't have been on the camera or they began using lenses they shouldn't have used. But there are scenes in which the corners are cut off. There are scenes where the whole top and bottom is cut off by blackness as if something's in front of the lens. It's really weird. But, you know, I get it. They're making a low-budget movie. They made a mistake while filming, and they probably didn't have the funds to go back and reshoot it, so they just had to use what they got. Now let's talk about the music. This chiming bell gets irritating very quickly, as well as this not really a harmonica sound. And this wacka wacka sound, what is that? It was created by Tommy Irons, and as far as I know, this was the only film he ever worked on. There are a couple southern rock songs that I guess are alright, though not really my cup of tea. The one bit of music I thought worked well was this tune that's used for chase scenes. Car 42. O'Brien, I'm on it. Now I'm going to read a little more from the Psychotronic Man website. It is also known for what happened to it after it was made. It was only played once commercially in Chicago where it was made at the now demolished Carnegie Theater on April 23, 1980 at 7 p.m. The film did well in the southern drive-in circuit and very well in Europe where the name was often changed and then pirated. The film is considered noteworthy for several reasons. The first is that the name Psychotronic became the generic name for unusual low-budget movies. This is due to the fact that after seeing the movie once, movie critic Michael J. Weldon created an extensive list of reviews of obscure, quirky films that he felt were underappreciated by the mainstream and then marketed this as the Psychotronic Encyclopedia. The existence of the Psychotronic Encyclopedia prompted the creation of the Psychotronic Film Society, at which point the term psychotronic fell into generic use for this type of movie. Beyond good or bad, and in a whole other category completely, it's gloriously weird and certain to alienate nearly any viewer who stumbles across it, aside from the select few who will celebrate it for precisely these reasons. And now, 20 plus years later, the movie lives on as the grandfather of all low-budget, undefinable, independent films. It's developing a renewed cult status. Join us on MySpace. And so the movie slowly fell into obscurity. But if you're like me, you probably hadn't heard about this movie until it appeared on Rift Tracks. 
Now, for this podcast, I watched the version on Jack Sell's YouTube channel and was surprised to find some differences. On the Riff Tracks version, the screen would occasionally turn green during transitions. This doesn't happen on Sell's cut. But more importantly, on Sell's version, Rocky has visions of what's to come even before he's made into the psychotronic man. And there are a few extra little bits here and there. On the Rip Tracks version, I didn't know if Rocky's wife was killed or not. But that's explained on Cell's cut. Scar 42, O'Brien? Roger, Chuck. Yeah, O'Brien? The woman's okay, uh, a little bit frightened. I'm gonna be following you up 190. You come down from the north, we're coming up from the south side on the S. We are staying as close. He looks as if he's going to go into traffic. The Rift Track version is 69 minutes long, while Cells is 80. That's 11 minutes of bonus footage. And I have to talk about the Rift Track's take on the film, because it's really the best way to watch it. It's very funny, and I'll share a couple of the really funny jokes with you. So far, the screenplay just reads, Barber gets in car and tests audience patience. Truck driving blues by the Tex Johnston band. Oh yeah, got the truck driving blues. Driving a car. Can't afford a truck. God problem, mister? I'm sorry, was that your first time uh, speaking? No. <laughs> Jeez, how boring do I have to be to get them to stop filming me? Back to it. Gotta fill out a lot more paperwork in real time. But surely these documents will be important to the story in some way, won't they? Of course they will, sweetheart. Of course. This being Chicago, eat a three-inch pile of dough with tomato soup poured on it and call it pizza. Hey, O'Brien. Here's that lab report on the jacket that we found. Turns out we're using the wrong lens for this camera. Cuts the corners off. Can you play the guitar in the loosest technical sense of the word? Congratulations, you're on the soundtrack. You know they call this no-permit movie-making guerrilla shooting? Oh, yeah, yeah, like the uh, Matt LeBlanc movie, Ed. Oh, Bill, no, Hey, guys, can you help me with this tripod leg? No. Hey, guys, can you help me with this tripod leg? No. Hey, guys, help me with this tripod leg? No. Hey, help me with this tripod leg? No. What? Do you realize this man is responsible for the murders of three people? Three people, or as it's known in Chicago, the bare minimum. By the way, Michael J. Weldon's The Psychotronic Encyclopedia film said of this film, The Psychotronic Man, an extremely low-budget independent from Chicago. The producers, whose main occupation is running an insurance business, stars as Rocky Fasco, the psychic barber. Unknown forces cause him to blink at people who die instantly or jump out of windows. Reports suggest it's good for a laugh. Great title, though. One bit of warning to all that watch this movie. There's a scene that takes place in a medical lab, and apparently, from what I've read, the cadavers that you see in the movie were real. They shot at a real medical lab with real cadavers. So if you're a bit squeamish, that's about the only scene that might affect you. As of this recording, Jack M. Sell is still alive. He made a couple of films after this, Outtakes from 1987 and Deadly Spy Games from 1989. He has published all his films on his YouTube channel, and you can watch them there for free. Thank you, Mr. Sell. 
Sadly, Peter Spelson passed away in 2006. He was still married to Marianne and had four children. On his obituary website, people are allowed to leave their condolences, and I thought I'd read one for you. I would like to offer my deepest sympathy to the entire Spelson family during these difficult times. Pete was a sharp, witty, charismatic, and charming man. Simply put, he was a great guy. We'll miss you, Uncle Pete. And that was by someone named John Egan. And lastly, I want to add that, although I made fun of this movie, and everybody seems to make fun of this movie, my heart still goes out to everyone who worked on it. It's easy to poke fun, but to make a full-length movie, especially before the age of digital cameras, it was a major achievement. And I respect anyone who can get something like this made. They took a shot, they swung for the fence, and, well, they didn't quite hit a home run. But the point is, they tried. And, you know, in a weird way, I sort of enjoyed watching this movie, and not for the it's-so-bad-it's-good type thing. It did have a certain quality that's unexplainable. Let's leave it at that. How do you do, ladies and gentlemen? This is Orson Welles. I'm speaking for the Mercury Theater, and what follows is supposed to advertise our first motion picture. Citizen Kane is the title, and we hope it can correctly be called a coming attraction. It's certainly coming, coming to this theater, and I think our Mercury actors make it an attraction. I'd like you to meet them. Speaking of attractions, well, the chorus girls are certainly an attraction, but frankly, ladies and gentlemen, we're just showing you the chorus girls for purposes of ballyhoo. It's a pretty nice ballyhoo. But here are some of our real Mercury people. This is the first time you've seen most of them on the screen. Hey, uh, give Joe a little light. A little bit before I go. I have heard that there's a DVD with commentary by Pete Spelson. I looked for it and couldn't find it. If anyone has a copy they want to sell me, contact me, please. You know, when I watch this film, I think about both Spelson and Cell. I'm guessing, but both men probably thought they were at the beginning of something big. I wonder how much of a disappointment it was when they realized that it wasn't going to happen. In an article in the Cicero Life newspaper from May 19, 1980, it reads, Considering all goes well for the psychotronic man, what lies ahead for the Waiting in the Wings movie mogul? Spelson says he's trying to obtain the rights to author Henry Mark Patakis' latest novel, Nick the Greek. And Spielson says he would rather stay in front of the camera as an actor than behind them as producer. I am here to act, he says. The hell with producing. That's all work. And of course, Spelson says with a smile, there's the sequel, The Psychotronic Man 2. Hey, if you've got any thoughts on The Psychotronic Man or anything else connected with today's show, you can email me at daysofcelluloid at gmail.com. Days of Celluloid, all being one word. And you know what? Your email doesn't even have to be about this movie. You can email me to say hi if you want. Or you can use my Facebook page. It's called Celluloid Days. And we have a Twitter page. It's at celluloid underscore days. Next week, I'm finally going to talk about the big one. Yep, Orson Welles' 1941 classic Citizen Kane. I'm going to explain why that movie means so much to me. Now, before I leave, I have one more request. If you could leave me a review, hopefully a good one, at wherever you stream this podcast, I'd be forever grateful. I'd like to thank you for listening. Take care, and I'll be back next Wednesday. Bye. <laughs>
They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Two dollars multipass. Multi-pass. Lena, uh, multi-pass. You know the small You're stupid minds. Stupid, stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I 